To get more out of this podcast, head over to Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get more episodes ad-free and earlier than everybody else, plus bonus content and exclusive series by myself and more than 130 other top-tier educational creators, many of whom I've interviewed on this podcast. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. It not only helps support the podcast, it furthers our mission of building a platform that focuses on content that matters. Yeah, uh, to know? be precise, it's about 20 years younger in, yeah. in the real world. Yeah. yeah. And, but that's remarkable. Like, it looks so much, so close. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I just I just wanted to like yeah. put that up for people to see because that just blew my mind. I'm, I'm hoping in the future we'll find more real photos of him. Uh, that that photo, while it's while it's good, is kind of disappointing in some ways because it's so res- low resolution. Yeah. It would be nice. It would be nice to find a better photo of him in much higher resolution. And the light's really- kind of severe on his face, so you can't really see the details in his in his eyes so and stuff like really- that. You can really, because you know, uh, in the summer to man autopsy photo, you can see he's got a, a very small mole above his lip. It would be uh, nice to have have the kind of resolution where you could actually see that on the real picture. Mystery videos have been a pretty solid performer on my channel for a while now, and some of the most popular ones involve in unidentified bodies, people who have washed up on beaches or found in mountain passes with no identification on them and a litany of confusing and mysterious clues that only serve to conjure up crazy theories around their deaths. Ties to the mob, spies, jilted lovers, death wishes, that kind of thing. Now, most of these videos come out, um, you know, they tell the story and that's pretty much the end of it because we don't get any updates. So there's nothing really else to talk about. This is not true in the case of the Summerton man. I did a video on that story back in March, and then I did another one in July because the identity of the Summerton man had finally been discovered after more than 70 years. And that is because of today's guest, Derek Abbott. Derek is a professor of electrical engineering at the University of Adelaide in Australia, and about 15 years ago or so, he, you know, stumbled upon the Summerton man case and, well, kind of got obsessed with solving it. And along the way, through many twists and turns and legal hurdles, and with some help from a genetic researcher named Colleen Fitzpatrick, he finally sussed out the name of the Summerton man, one Carl Charles Webb. And through the magic of the internet, I was able to sit down with Derek and talk in detail about how they went through researching this, the crazy advances in DNA forensics that made it possible, and what it's like to solve a 70-year-old mystery. Now, I will say that if you're completely new to the Summerton Man case, I recommend you watch my video on it first, or any video really, there's plenty of good ones out there, because I, we do just kind of jump into this one. Um, but if you are at all familiar with the story, I think you'll get a real kick out of this. I know I did. And with all that out of the way, let's just jump into my conversation with Derek Abbott. I guess I'll just jump in with the big question. Is, is this thing solved? Like, is it, is it officially solved? Can you say that? Well, uh, it defines, you have to define what you mean by soul. <laughs> if you mean, have we found the guy's name? Uh, the answer is yes. Mm. Uh, if you mean, uh, do we know what happened and how he died? The answer is absolutely no. Uh, we have no idea. Okay. So there's still a so, lot of questions. And there's a lot of gray areas in between. So yeah. uh, I, I like to say to people that Finding his name is a great achievement, but it's really, in a sense, is the beginning of the journey, not the end. Mm -hmm. Because now we have to unfold all the details of his life 
that we can find at least yeah and try to get some idea of what he was doing yeah well so um i imagine anybody that's listening to this knows the story but just in case somebody doesn't know the story of the summerton man can you give your little elevator pitch on the on the whole mystery you're the expert i'll let you do it uh the brief summary is that a guy was found dead on the beach here in Adelaide, Australia in 1948. And uh, for over 70 years, he was unidentified. Mm. And no one knew his name. No one knew his cause of death. There wasn't a scratch on his body. He was found nicely dressed. His uh, toenails and fingernails were nicely clipped and cleaned. He was clean shaven. Uh, So he was not a drifter. Um, uh, he looked well to do and, um, yeah, it was a mystery. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the mystery that it went by for so long with no identification, <laughs> but spoiler, spoiler alert. We do have an identification now. Yeah. We, we know his <laughs> name. <laughs> well, I, I, I started to ask you this before we started recording, but I am curious, like, how, how are you, how are you feeling right now? Like, I mean, how you've been working like 20 years you've been working on this, right? Uh, no, I think about 15 years. Oh, just 15. Okay. Yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> I remember now, I think it was, I think it was 2007. I started, uh, uh-huh. working on this. So is that 15? I my, so. Yeah, my, I think that's right. Yeah. My, my subtraction isn't that great. Yeah. I think that's right. <laughs> okay. Exactly 15. And, and, you know, uh, in the grand scheme of things, that's not really that long, like, uh, in my normal, uh, research that I do in math and engineering and physics and that sort of stuff. I have published papers that have taken me 15 years. Oh. Uh, so that's actually my maximum. So 15 years is my, <laughs> going, is my going rate for a tough problem. Yeah. Well, I know that for me, whenever I finally, and maybe you're not at the end of this, like you said, it's really just the beginning of, uh, of a, a lot more questions, but you know, you, you, there's, there's, I, I can imagine you feeling some euphoria, but at the same time, a little bit like, Oh, you know, a little, a little bit of like, I don't know. It, like it's all over now. What kind of thing? No, uh, not at all. Not at, because the, the reality is, it's not over. Yeah. It's, okay. There's still a lot of mystery to solve in this case, whether <laughs> I will personally, be engaged in that all the way through. I don't know. Mm. Uh, I have other things to do. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, other pastures to go on to. So you know, I may may stick around a little while, and uh, but uh, I may move on mm. and uh, start looking at other projects. Well, uh, so another, uh, okay. if you're interested, the fun thing I'm looking at at the moment is the Voynich manuscript. Have you heard of that? Okay, okay, okay. So, man, you jumped right ahead to the end of this whole podcast. I was going to ask if there was any any new but mysteries you wanted to work that. on or anything. I, I didn't know if that was if, if this was going to be it and you were done, or if this is like starting a whole new chapter of no, Scooby Doo crime solving. No, I've been working on the Voynich for quite a few years. Oh now. wow, cool. And, uh, yeah, uh, just to just to try and figure out. You know, is this actually a language or not? Uh-huh. Is it fake? Um, and can we differentiate letters from numbers even in this mm-hmm. in this text? 
So, well, in case people don't know what the Voynich is that are listening, <laughs> um, it's a 14th century manuscript. And to this day, no one knows what language it's, what language it's in and even what it says. So mm. that's, that's a real mystery. I think this is going to be a lot harder than the Somerton Man. <laughs> I've covered it before in a video. It's, it's a fascinating story. But I've, I've got some ideas and we're working yeah. on it. Yeah. Well, okay. I would I've love even... to circle back around to this, but we got a lot of Summerton Man stuff to talk about first. I don't yeah, want yeah. to lose too much of it. But um, w- one thing I did want to ask, if you don't mind me jumping back to the Summerton Man stuff, I'm sure you're, you you might be tired of talking about it at this point. I don't know. but um, So the, 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 the police have not officially like closed the case or anything, right? Yeah, uh, so it's actually not up to the police. It's the coroner who makes okay. the final official announcement. And uh, I think the report to the coroner to enable him to do that's probably going to happen shortly after Christmas. So okay. um, I think provided he's not too busy, we will see this happen early next year. Okay. If he's very busy, you know, it might take six months. <laughs> who knows? Yeah, he has new <laughs> cases to deal with. Well, he has a, a, a backlog of two years of cases because of COVID, oh, and the court, wow. the, the coroner's court, uh, was you know not operating, because okay. uh, we were kind of uh, trying to not uh, <laughs> socialize at that time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, because this is not actually having to go through a court as such, but um, just has to be a decision he makes after reading a report. Hopefully, it will be not take two years. Um, mm-hmm my fingers well so um let me make sure my, my facts are straight here so so i know that you worked for a while to get the body exhumed mm. right? and they and they did do that but then you were able to take the dna from the the plaster cast yeah did did anything actually come from the the body being examined or uh well, uh, I assume so, um, because uh, if it wasn't going to happen, I would have found out about it by now. But yeah. uh, I assume uh, that's gone well, and uh, uh, it looks like the police are going to make their report uh, soon, and it's going to all come out matching. Okay. Uh, but they haven't officially said that yet. Well, I guess my take on it, just kind of like, you know, following along, I was like, oh, my God, he spent all those years to get the body exhumed. And then it turned out you didn't even need to. You were able to make it work with what you already had. Uh, Well, uh, you know, if it was up to just me, I would say, hey, we don't need to have the dug up body or we can just do it with the hair. But uh, to follow all the protocols and check that, you know, the hair really does Mm. match with the body, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, for, you know, for some people, they, they, they want to see that, see it go the whole way. So, mm. you know, digging up the body was not wasted from that point of view. Mm. So, uh, um, what about and, some of the and, other, Oh, go ahead. I'm and, you know, there, there were all sorts of conspiracy theorists who say there was a body swap and the real mm. body was never buried and all this kind of stuff. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, maybe you have to go this extra mile and check that the hair matches uh, the body because um, then you have to say, well, if there was a body swap, then how do you explain that the DNA in the hair 
from the bust matches the body. Yeah. So there couldn't have been a body swap. Yeah. Uh, no, that makes sense. It's, it had multiple, yeah. like, what's the word I'm looking for? Never mind. Makes sense. I get it. Um, the motivation for a body swap is like really weird. It's, it's so out there. Uh, I wouldn't even consider that as a possibility myself. Yeah. But we're, we're pretty sure that it was a likely suicide. Right. Um, well, you know, I'm not sure how sure I am about anything okay. these days. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but let me say this, that um, right from day one, the police themselves always suspected of suicide. Mm. They never, in the police file, there isn't any, uh, any idea of a homicide in there. It was never classed as a homicide. Mm. So um, they saw it as a suicide. Whether in fact it's some suicide or some accidental death, I, you know, or, or he was just ill and died of unknown causes, I don't know. Mm. Uh, I'm not. Um, I'm not a medical pathologist, so it's beyond my pay grade. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, one of the one of the sad things about this case is that the original medical pathology report has been lost throughout oh. time so we don't have those original documents all we have is the path, uh, is a transcript of the notes of the pathologist talking in court in the coroner's court in 1949 uh, and because he's talking be before a court it's summarized without all the scientific detail oh, okay and he's using more lay terms. Uh, so when I show this um, this transcript of the inquest to a, a modern pathologist, they just shrug their shoulders and say, well, I, I can't tell you what that really means mm. because this is imprecise language. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, unless by some miracle we dig into an archive one day and miraculously find the original technical pathology report, mm. I don't think we will find out much about how this guy really died. Hmm. Okay. I just, um, I've covered this story. I've covered the Isdal woman and a few others, the, the Peter Bergman case and all that. And it's, and it's just funny how the theories around it immediately go to spy stuff and, and really, you know, intricate, uh, uh, stories that uh, the things just kind of get blown bigger and bigger for for these kinds of stories, and it's 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 always funny to me because it usually just winds up being something kind of mundane. Yeah, I think probably in all these three cases they were just loners. Yeah, um, and that's how it is. Yeah, um, I think what's interesting about this one. Well, and all of them really is, is that, um, there's so, it's not that there's not any evidence. There's almost too much evidence. Like there's, there's so many different things that tie into this and it could be that. And it's just kind of gives you all these different directions to go in. Um, ha has that code in the book been deciphered? Was it just a, something about gambling? Like he did horses and stuff or. Well, my students and I looked at this over and over again. Uh, that was kind of what, you, what got you into it, isn't it? As we looked at it over and over again a number of years with different sets of students. So we repeated uh, the tests and did new ones. 
And every time we statistically tested, it just came up every time as the first letters of words in the English language. And we tried all sorts of ideas of ways of testing that. And each time that's how it came up. Uh, also, uh, we went through all the known World War II ways of uh, creating codes mm -hmm. that were known in that era. And basically, we can eliminate virtually uh, most of them hmm. uh, for one reason or another. You know, just a trivial example, you know, some codes work on the principle of even number of letters and you pair them. So obviously, it can't be that one. That's out already because <laughs> it's an odd <laughs> number. Yeah. And things like that. So um, there the, the, the are lots of ways you can eliminate various codes. Um, some codes um, rely on uh, evenly distributing the letters that you end up with. And so it can't be any of those because those letters do not have an even distribution. They're very spiked. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, we were, we were able to eliminate a ton. And it just really... You know, when you just really look at it, it doesn't have the sophistication or the structure of a real cryptographic code. It's mm. re it's really just first letters of of letters, uh, so, first letters of words. So whoever it was that wrote that code, whether it was him or some previous owner of the book or whatever, it was just writing. It was just making. Maybe it was a yeah. grocery list of like M for mayo and B for banana yeah. or something. You know. Yeah, and uh, you said you did a cup podcast on the Isdal woman, and mm. there that was actually cracked. She actually did have some letters, and it turned out to be the first letters of cities that she had traveled right. to. Yeah. So, you know, this could be something similar. It could be not that, but it might be, you know, first letters of horse names he was betting on or, you know, mm. anything. Yeah. Who knows? Well, I'd heard, I'd heard the horse betting thing. Um, and. And whether he actually really wrote that or not, we don't know. That's a big assumption, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was wondering that about the the whole Joe Thompson thing about her her name being in the book. Like, maybe it was something that she gave to somebody else before, and they sold it oh. to a used bookstore or something. Oh, a small correction there. Her name was not in the book. It was her phone number. Oh, okay. Just the phone number. Yeah. Okay. And so the police tracked her down through that phone number. Okay. Yeah. Um, so either she knew him and he had her phone number or it was just some coincidental thing. Mm -hmm. Perhaps, you know, people have put their phone numbers in classified advertisements in newspapers and things in those days. Maybe he mm -hmm. um, something and then wrote down her number, thought, oh, I got to ring up and get so-and-so. Who knows? Yeah. But Kind of that sounds a little unlikely if you're about to commit suicide or something. Why would you want to go and buy whatever she's advertising? <laughs> but yeah. um, uh, who knows? Uh, maybe there is some connection between them. But uh, whether we will find out what that real connection is, I, I don't know. Maybe we will one day. Mm -hmm. Is that something you're still pursuing? Or are there any other parts of the case that you're still involved in? Yeah, um, I mean, we would like to find out if there's some connection between the two people. Um, and I think the only way we're going to find that out is by looking into the life of Charles Webb. Yeah. Uh, that's his name. Um, and um, and find out who his connections are and, and, and just see if uh, these two people connect in some way. 
There could be good reason to, for, for instance, they were both um, strangers to, this, to our state. Um, Charles Webb lived in a state called Victoria and was mm. visiting here in Adelaide. And same with Joe Thompson, uh, that he had, whose number he had. Um, she had only been living here about a year. She was from Victoria too. Mm. So perhaps, perhaps they knew each other from the past. Who knows? Hmm. That's challenging. Interesting. They came from both from the same state, yeah. but uh, it could be just a coincidence. Yeah. Huh. It's funny because I'm, I'm trying to not sensationalize it, <laughs> but your brain just kind of wants to make it like, oh, they had a thing going on or something, you know? Yeah, it's tempting to say that, but um, when there's no uh, strong evidence, uh, I think you have to have to just uh, l look at it dispassionately. Yeah. Well, I got to say, when um, this was only a couple of weeks ago or so, it feels like anyway, when, when those pictures were found, and ABC did the, the, the report on it. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm still kind of new to this program. I'm going to try to share my screen, but I don't know if you'll be able to see it. Let me know if you can see this. Okay. Can you see that? Uh, no, no I, can, I just see you. You just see me? Oh, okay. Um, well, I've got up on screen basically that um, the rendering of uh, – was it Vox Art? Is that what the name is? Vosh Vosh Art. Oh, Daniel Voshart. Daniel Voshart. Vo Voshart. Oh, okay, but but yeah, that that yeah. rendering with the tie and yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he uh, just a little bit of backstory on that. Yeah. He is the guy that does the CGI graphics for all the Star Trek movies. Oh, okay. I saw that. Okay, I saw something in a headline about that, but I didn't know if that he, was the same guy. He's the man. So he's got all the latest software. To That's do, really cool. To do, do images, and he's got AI software and the whole works. Uh -huh. So he actually used AI to reconstruct the Summerton man's uh, face from okay. the autopsy photo to try and make him look as he would if he was alive. Mm -hmm. What inspired me to actually ask him to do that, why I felt we needed something like that, is because this was in the days before we knew his identity mm -hmm. and it struck me uh, and anyone can do this so you can just just go out and do google and google marilyn monroe's autopsy photo and and it's online and have yeah. a look yeah you will see it actually looks nothing like marilyn, right. marilyn monroe yeah you if you saw somebody lying on the street looking like that dead you would not guess that was marilyn right <laughs> yeah so it made me think maybe we've been looking too long at this uh, photo of this dead guy and that's actually not what he really looks like yeah and so that's what motivated me to reach out to daniel and i thought he did a great job of uh, reconstructing that using ai what was your question about the photo by the way well just, just real quick did you have a, a, a relationship with him before you just reached out cold and said oh i just do? We, we just cold contacted him yeah. And he did it. I think, That's cool. Uh, I think uh, uh, Colleen, who I work, worked with on this case, I think she was the one who first reached out and cold contacted oh, okay. him. And, um, and there, yeah, we just uh, hit it off from there. He did, cool. a fantastic, he did a fantastic job. Well, so, yeah, what I was bringing up, and I'll, I'll put it on the screen for our viewers, unfortunately, I guess you can't see it, but um, 
I have it up next to that picture of, is it Carl or Charles? Well, uh, he was born Carl Webb, but he never liked the name. He okay. always went by the name Charles Webb. Okay. So I, I call him Charles Webb. Okay. Because uh, that well, was his common name. I was making jokes in the video about how all Australians have multiple names, apparently, because every every single every single person in the story had like a separate name that they went by. Well, I mean, you guys <laughs> say Marilyn Monroe, you don't say Norma Jean, even though that's her real well, name. You know, it's like uh, it's like I prefer to use the name that he actually used in everyday life, which is Charles Webb. Okay. Well, so what I've got up on the screen <laughs> is, is that uh, is that rendering that we were just talking about next to yeah. one of the photos that was found of Charles uh, when he was alive. And the first thing that I thought when I saw it was like, wow, that is really close. Yeah. Like that is really close. I mean, he, he looks a little bit older in the rendering, but he was much younger in that photo than. Yeah. Uh, you know. To be precise, he's about 20 years younger. In, yeah. In the real photo. Yeah. yeah. And, but that's remarkable. Like it looks so much, so close. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I just I just wanted to like put that up for people to see because that just blew my mind. I'm, I'm hoping in the future we'll find more real photos of him. Uh, that that photo, while it's while it's good, is kind of disappointing in some ways because it's so res low resolution. Yeah. It would be nice. It would be nice to find a better photo of him in much higher resolution. And the light's really kind of severe on his face, so you can't really see the details in his in his eyes so and stuff like really that. You can really, because you know, uh, in the summer to man autopsy photo, you can see he's got a, a very small mole above his lip. It would be uh, nice to have have the kind of resolution where you could actually see that on the real picture. So you like mysteries, do you? I'm a bit of a mystery guy myself, which is why I made a series on the mysteries of the human body, which you can watch on Nebula. Nebula is a streaming service created by educational YouTubers like myself who wanted to find a place to exist outside the confines of the YouTube algorithm where we can experiment with newer and bigger projects and you can follow the people that you like algorithm free. Now, if you're listening to this podcast right now, uh, you know, like right after it came out, there is a video version of it available right now on Nebula, which you can see exclusively before it gets released on YouTube. And if you're watching it on Nebula, well, you wouldn't be hearing this because all my videos in Nebula are ad free. Nebula is only $5 a month, and you get access to hundreds of educational creators. It's a little less than that with the annual plan, but the best way to get it is to sign up for the Curiosity Stream bundle. Curiosity Stream, of course, is one of the best documentary streaming services in the world, if not the best, as far as I'm concerned, with thousands of titles from award-winning filmmakers from all around the world. Like, if you like solving crimes and mysteries, you might like the series Crime Scene Solvers, in which each episode takes you on a real true crime case and invites you to help figure it out. So if you sign up for this bundle at curiositystream.com slash joescottpod, you'll get both Nebula and CuriosityStream for the absurdly low price of $14.79 for the entire year. Two great streaming services, ad-free YouTube content, and documentaries on documentaries on documentaries for a little over a buck a month. You might never leave your TV again. So if you get all that and you like it and you want to do it, it does support this podcast. So one more time, it's curiositystream.com slash joescottpod. One more time, curiositystream.com slash joescottpod. Go check it out. Um, you know, and there are people out there who don't believe that's his photo, you, you know. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, and, and there are a number of, uh, you know, there, there are a number of things about the photo that uh, are interesting. Like his hair looks quite blonde in that photo yeah 
have to realize is that A, it's a black and white photo. B, you don't know the angle and what the sunlight is doing on the shine of his hair. Um, True. So, uh, and things like that. And perhaps, you know, some, some people's hair bleaches in the sun. If you've been in, out in the sun a lot and then it goes darker later. Um, so we, we don't really know. I, I don't think there's a lot you can hang off the tone of his hair. Another interesting thing, uh, this is something I observed myself uh, when I immediately saw the photo and various other conspiracy theorists are now pointing this out. Uh, but I never said anything about it at the beginning because I dismissed it myself. But if you look at the photo, he's uh, there's a photo of uh, four people there where he's standing with his parents and his brother. Mm. Now, his brother was a prisoner of war. Um, and so it has a military record. So you can look up his exact height in his military record. Okay. And, and that's the first thing I did just to check. And the brother is actually shorter uh, than Charles Webb. But in the photo, they look roughly the same height. Mm. Um, so, uh, and their height difference is, is uh, not that much. I think it's, um, it's less than two inches. I can't remember the exact amount but uh, somewhere between one and two inches. But, you know, you have to realize this photo is taken on a, on a field. It's out in the open on, on, uh, on grassland. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're not on flat land, so you don't know if somebody's actually standing on a little bit of higher ground uh, than the other. Yeah. And another, uh, another thing is a sibling rivalry. Uh, <laughs> Like, uh, if ever there's a photo of me next to my brother, uh, I'm always standing on my tiptoes just to, to be as tall as him. You, you know what I mean? As the shortest uh, <laughs> guy in my family when I was growing up, I know what that's about. Yeah. yeah. So, so us guys played these tricks. So you don't know what's going on in that photo. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a lot you can say from the height because it's not a full, a full height photo. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. <laughs> so there's a couple of little rabbit holes there mm -hmm. right there for you. Well, in terms of the um, the genetic stuff, you mentioned Colleen a second ago. Um, she's popped up in a few different things that I've worked on, uh, videos and stories and stuff. She's she's kind of a rock star. Um, what was it like she's working a, with her? I mean, oh, it was great. It was good fun working with Colleen. Yeah. Uh, uh, we we worked well together. Um, uh, I think. Um, uh, you know, and there were things when we're working through, you, you probably heard the story that we built out the family tree together. Mm -hmm. No, but feel free four. to talk about that. Go into detail if you want yeah. to. And we, we had 4,000 people on there. Uh, um, so it was a huge job. Yeah. And um, we probably split that workload fairly equally. Uh, she was really good at actually starting it off and getting it going. And I, I think I came to the floor actually being uh, finishing and actually tunneling down mm. and finding alive relatives from that tree. Um, so, so it was a good comp complementary activity. Um, and, you know, there were times, times when we're building that tree where, you know, I was skeptical about something and she wasn't and vice versa, <laughs> where she was skeptical. <laughs> Uh, skeptical and I wasn't and 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 it was good to have 
two different people looking at it with two pairs of eyes because we were able to correct each other's mistakes as we went along. So, yeah, you want to do uh, have a little bit of a story about the process we went through. So we we um, when, when we got the DNA and we uploaded it, we found uh, that the closest match uh, was somebody that lived in Australia. So it was starting to look like, and, and the other next closest matches were all in Australia too. Mm. So it's starting to look like, hey, this guy is from Australia. Um, mm -hmm. Like, why would you get these close matches here? Because uh, the hype, you know, uh, there was quite a big hypothesis that the Summer to Man could have been American because he, he carried lots of American items yeah. uh, of clothing and things like that. And an American aluminum comb, which we didn't sell here in Australia at the time. Um, but I'll get back to that, why it is that he had so much American stuff, if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll come, we think we have a solution to that. Okay. Um, but any, uh, anyway, that hypothesis was obviously wrong now because there were so many Australian connections. And... Um, his first connection worked out to be something like, um, I'm doing this from memory now, so I might get this off by mm. one or two places, but it was like a first cousin three times removed. I, I don't think it was two times. I think it was three times. Uh, so that was the best connection we had to work with. Um, unfortunately, that connection had an unknown father. And uh, so we, we thought, hmm, this is a little, maybe a little bit too hard uh, working with this unknown like this. Let's go and look at the next connections down the list. So we went on our merry way, building out all these connections and their family tree. So this is why it came to 4,000. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> we're, we're doing it from all these. And, you know, those other ones kind of led nowhere. So... Colleen said, okay, well, let's go back to our first guy. Let's see if we can find out who his real father is, you know, because like to solve this mystery, you got to solve that mystery. And then to solve that yeah. one, you got to solve this one. And we've got to solve that. So that actually turned out not as hard as we had thought. We probably shouldn't have dismissed it on day one. We should have tried that straight away, but we didn't know how hard it was going to be. So, uh, Colleen gets the kudos for that. She cracked that. And, uh, and so we built out, built out the tree from this guy now that we knew whose father was. And it connect, and there was a huge branch of the family that connected to a family by the name Keen, K-E-A-N. And Colleen. Did that just make your heart like? pump yeah. <laughs> when you saw that it had to well no, colleen's heart pump not mine i was skeptical oh okay yeah so colleen uh said this is it it's got to be one of these keens you mm -hmm. know she was super excited about the keen thing yeah. and i'm it, going oh well for anybody who's listening and doesn't get it uh his his tie and some of the some of his clothing had t keen in the yeah. written on yeah there, so yeah well by the way it's not t keen it's a strange letter keen it oh. could be anything else. People always say in the media it's a T because that's the nearest thing that comes to their mind. But it's just some like weird oh. stroke. 
that could be a team okay. at T. But I pointed out many years ago that this could be a T, an I, or a J. It doesn't have to be a T. Okay. Because what's, ha what's happened is somebody has written this cursively and then, and then said to themselves, oh, this is too hard writing on this woolen tie cursively with an India ink pen. I'm going to now do the rest in block capitals. And that cursive way of starting a letter could be an sure. I, a J, or a T. Okay. Um, and I, but I'll come back to that. It turns out that it's not an I or a T, it's a J. But I, I, I'll, I'll get back to that okay. later in the story. Well, so to anybody anyway, who was listening and was confused, the, the word keen yeah. was written yeah, on well, the clothes. Yeah. Uh, so it was written on the tie. Uh, I think it was written on a couple of... Um, uh, in Australia, we say vests. Uh, what's the white thing you wear under your uh, under your shirt? Uh, oh, like a like a tank top. Yeah, like you an say undershirt. Yeah, an under, you say undershirt. Okay, we say well, vest for that. You know, what we actually <laughs> call them here. What we call them wife beaters. Oh, okay. Somehow well, that just became an okay thing to call it, and. And that's what people right. just call it here. And I'm always just like, how are we okay with this? Anyway, sorry. But yeah, a little, <laughs> little undershirt. Yeah. A little undershirt. Yeah. So he had a na this name on a couple of undershirts spelled K-E-A-N-E. -E. And for those who are into real detail, into really fine details, in one of the undershirts, the last E was missing. Uh, but there is a kind of an annotation in the coronial or inquest or police notes somewhere I saw, which said, but it looks like the E was really there. It had just faded in the laundering. Mm. Uh, so it was K-E-A-N-E -E on the tie and shirts. And get this, there was a canvas laundry bag. It wasn't handwritten on that bag. It was stenciled. Mm. So when you stencil on a laundry bag in those days, that screams to me of some institution like the military. Right. You're some kind of GI and uh, this was your military laundry bag. Right. Um, and you can Google military laundry bags and you can see they're just like that. You can yeah. see it in Google images. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so... You know, when the cops first saw this name Keen, they thought, you know, back in the 40s, they thought this has got to be the guy. But uh, they could find no one with that name in Australia that had gone missing. Mm. So it was like a real dead end. But then when Colleen saw the family name Keen was connected to uh, one of our DNA matches, she got real excited. She said, this has got to be it. But we went through all the Keens super carefully and uh, we could uh, find none that were unaccounted for. They all had dates of death. Uh, they were all there, all the ones mm -hmm. that were in the right date range to be the right age for the Somerton man. And, and she said, uh, you know, it's got to be one of these. We, we must be just missing one. And I said, um, well, don't you think it's a bit of a coincidence? Colleen Keane's a pretty common name is you I was know gonna ask if that's a common name in australia or no um it's common in america too 
expand anybody's family tree, there's probably a keen in there somewhere. Expanded <laughs> <laughs> it out to 4,000 people. Uh, so, you know, I'm saying, oh, uh, and, you know, and she said, you know, we've got to investigate this further. We've got to, we got to, uh, and it turned out there were Catholics, right? So we got to go to the Catholic church where they were all baptized hmm. and, and pull out their baptismal records. And so I said, oh, do I really have to do that, Colleen? <laughs> So okay, <laughs> uh, are you serious about this or not? Okay, uh, okay. So you're serious. Okay, so we did that. Uh, I made a nuisance of myself in that particular church. It's called Saint Olypius Church in a place called Ballarat, in um, in uh, in Victoria. So anyone from that church who's listening, uh, sorry, I made such a nuisance. <laughs> and that it was all worth it. And that your baptismal records actually weren't worth it. <laughs> did, oh, it no, okay. It came to nothing. Another uh, dead end. did not find any missing keens in those baptismal records. They were all accounted for. So, uh, so then Colleen said, you know, um, that's interesting that one of the guys called Charles Webb is married to one of these Keens and doesn't have a date of death. And I said, uh, uh, yeah, but that's nothing, that could be the case. This could be Charles Webb, great. However, that's nothing to do with the guy's tie, right? <laughs> that's just the coincidence that he's, uh, you know, married to one of them. Mm. And, um, and she goes, okay, well, we're, we're going to look at this Charles Webb guy next. Actually, uh, actually, we, we'd actually, um, there's another part of the story. We, um, we actually looked at another guy first uh, that didn't have a date of death before Charles Webb. I'm trying to remember his name now. Uh, it's, it's escaped me because it's in unimportant now. I haven't yeah. remembered it. It was Frederick somebody. But anyway, uh, we, we looked into him quite deeply still to this day we can't find his date of death we don't know what happened to him but we found a photo of him and uh colleen was saying this photo it looks like him it's got to be him and i'm saying no the photo doesn't look like him to me uh, <laughs> and you're talking to me now who um who has spent the last 15 years having conspiracy theorists send me photos of um... potential man i've seen hundreds of these sure and so i've got a really good eye for eliminating them mm -hmm. and so when i saw this this uh guy oh, i remember his name now frederick davies mm. frederick davis um i said no this is not him this doesn't look like him at all so anyway we moved on and went to um charles webb and uh, so you know and i wasn't holding my breath because uh, I thought, well, this could just be another Frederick Davis. It'll just be another dead end. Who knows? So we're building out his tree, and uh, there's a real twist here. Um, and, and Colleen says, okay, so um, what we're going to do is we're going to find descendants of his mother. So it's just from his mother's side only. So if one of those matches, we can then triangulate because we've got uh, we've got uh, a match coming from the other end of the tree, and mm -hmm. so if it triangulates, uh, that's it. 
I said, great idea. So uh, I set about, uh, as, so, so no, we, we both worked on that. We both tunneled down the mother's tree and uh, built it out. And then it was, my, the task was left to me to actually then tunnel it down further to actually find some alive people and contact them. Mm. So I contact this, this very nice lady. She was very helpful and cooperative and um I think uh, already had her DNA done on one of the systems, so it was just a matter of her getting getting her to upload it on on our system. And uh, guess what? It was a flop, no match. <laughs> okay, so m- make sure I'm straight here. Are you still talking about the Frederick guy, or are you talking about Charles at this point? No, I'm talking about Charles now. Okay, okay. Charles was not a match. Interesting. So Colin. Colleen's still obsessed. So, so even though she was wrong about the Keen thing, uh, there was actually, spoiler alert, there actually is some kind of connection with Keen. But she was obsessed with this connection with Keen. So because she was so obsessed with Keen, she was thinking, you know, if it's, if it's not a Keen, it has to be somebody connected to this Keen. So it's, it's got to be this Charles Webb. So she's obsessed with this Charles Webb now. And so I, I'm ready tonight. Totally dismiss Charles Webb now and move on to mm. try and find someone else. And she said, uh, "There's something wrong here." And she's looking and looking, and um, she found out. Uh, and this is quite quite subtle. Charles Webb's mum, mother, was on her birth certificate. Her surname is actually Grace. So we assumed that was right. And so we'd built out this whole family tree based on her surname, Grace. But there was enough information floating around on Genia Logical websites. Some other people in this family had already done some research on this and were suggesting that Mr. Grace, her father, was put on, uh, sorry, Mr. Grace was put on her birth certificate as her father, but that wasn't really her father. And it was really a guy by the name of Morris. <laughs> and, and Colleen says, okay, we're going to build out the tree based on this Morris surname now, based, based on this Morris guy. And she said, okay, we're deleting all this part of the tree that's grace. So she went, delete, delete, delete. We had to start all over again and build it all out from this Morris guy. And I'm, and I'm here, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, oh God, this is a, a wild goose chase. This is. Uh, Sounds like a lot of wild one. goose chases. So, wild goose chase uh, going for this Morris guy. It's just some people's speculation on there. I'm not sure there's real proof that it's Morris. I wasn't convinced, mm-hmm. to be honest. But I thought, yeah, we got to play with this. It's all we've got. So I'm, I'm being skeptical here. And so we build, build out this Morris tree and um, to a certain point, and then I tunnel it down, find an alive person in, in Australia and contact him. And his name was Antero Bonifacio. And I wasn't holding my breath. Um, I said to and Tero, you know, um, do you mind if getting your DNA tested because we want to see if you're connected or not mm-hmm. to this case? Um, and 
Oh, by the way, w when I talk to people, uh, all these potential descendants, I never tell them what case I'm working on. I just say it's a case. I was I was going to ask, like, how do people respond yeah. when you come to them yeah. with this kind of a it's, request? It's part, it's, part, it's part of the protocol. So we don't say what case we're working on. Okay. Um, that's just how you do it. Uh, so, so he agreed. He was very, um, very obliging. Uh, and um, it just so happened that his mother was really big on His mother had recently passed away mm -hmm. and was really big on family trees and was really into it. And so he kind of was a little bit excited because oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, of that. So he was actually keen to get it done. So, so that was great. So, you know, and when you send your DNA off to one of these, uh, you know, 23andMe or mm -hmm. Ancestry.com, you know, these guys can take, you know, like two or three months. Uh, and especially with the, with the post back to Australia, from mm. Australia to America, and uh, with COVID on yeah. and the post is super slow. It's like, <laughs> it's like over three months. And, uh, and so, you know, Colleen and I, are, you know, they were waiting for th basically for three months for this to come through. And uh, so we're on tender hooks, not knowing where to go with this <laughs> thing thinking, you know, maybe we should start looking somewhere else. Mm. And bang, when it came through, it was a hit. And Tarot connected. Okay. And um, so it was at this point, we decided to make the announcement and announce that we had cracked it. And but since then, we have found various other cousins um, on both sides of the family uh that uh connect to the summerton man and ones that are even closer matches uh than um than uh antero uh the best match we've got is somebody who turns out to be a granddaughter of one of charles webb's sisters sisters called doris okay and she is like the closest seems to be the closest living relative at the moment. Okay. And she has a huge, a huge DNA overlap with the summit man's DNA. So uh -huh. once I got that, I was thinking, right, that's, that's it. This is now time to feed this information to the cops now. And yeah. <laughs> they can put it in their report to the uh -huh. coroner. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's the story of building out the tree and how there was all these little twists and turns. Uh, me thinking that, you know, we're miles away from getting it and, but we were just around the corner uh -huh. and, uh, and, and it needed both Colleen's enthusiasm and my skepticism <laughs> tension together to uh -huh. kind of pull it all together. That's amazing. Um, yeah. especially considering you had your own. I'm going to say hypothesis instead of theory, because every time I say theory in a casual sense, I always get punched in the comments for it. But, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Um, but no, you had your own hypothesis and it involved, you know, the the Robin um, Thompson and, 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 well, Rachel, and that's how you met her and everything. Um, yeah. And I, I got to, I'm just going to put it out there. Like, I, I really respect that you had, your idea of what you thought it was, but when the evidence said otherwise, you went with the evidence. You didn't try to fit it to your narrative. 
even yeah. though you had that, more reason than anybody in the world <laughs> to go that way. And there was a reason for that. Uh, there's a reason for that. And the reason is because it was a hypothesis. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't actually a hope or, a, or an emotional attachment. Mm -hmm. It was just a scientific hypothesis. And I had, and the form of that hypothesis, because it's the best I had to go on with the information of the time. At the time, yeah. And, and there were a lot of circumstantial factors that fit. And it's quite amazing that so many factors fit, and yet it was all able to be turned over. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it happens in science, in, in other fields of science all the time. You know, yeah. we, we have, you know, for hundreds of years, uh, you know, just felt so right that you space is Euclidean and now it's, <laughs> you know, and yeah. that's all com completely turned over. So turning over that hypothesis was like turning over Euclid, you know, <laughs> it, it was, it was just like that for me. It's know? just, it's just the way it is. Well, as, as a, I'm not, okay. I, I'm a science communicator, but I, I really am. I think I'm more of a storyteller. That's just kind of my natural talent or whatever. Um, and, and it's such a good story. And I think that's why maybe it resonated with people so much. Um, Cause there was all this like, Oh, it's, it's, Oh, we found this piece of evidence and it says this, but Oh no, it's not that because of this over here. But then we find this over here and it's kind of like, it's just this roller coaster that just yeah. never seems to quite resolve. And um, so, so now let me loop back uh, and get back to that point I was making earlier, how this now all connects back to the keen name. Yeah, go for it and how he had the title keen mm -hmm. so so what happened was is uh colleen said um okay so one of the summit of man's sisters his name is frida keen because she married a keen and see her husband his name is thomas begins with a t just like the tie but uh, i said to um colleen oh i don't think so i i think it's still just a coincidence because you know that tie, to me, that's not a T. That could be a T, an I, or a J. And, um, and then when you look up this Thomas King guy about his life, etc., he never went by the name Thomas King. He was always called Gerald King. <laughs> it's, going back to your, it's going back to your joke that Aussies always have right, different birds. Yeah. Yeah, there was no exception for Gerald. Interesting. And I'm saying... I'm saying, Colleen, no, this is Gerald. He would never put a T on his tie. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 this has to be, this has to be Thomas. This is, this is tie. And I said, but no, something's wrong here. But anyway, uh, I'm poking around and mm -hmm. I find that uh, Gerald Keane has a son called John Keane okay. with a J. And I'm thinking, ah, J, J is one of my options for this mm -hmm. strange letter to be. And, um, and uh, it turns out he has a war record. So I was able to look him up, find his photo, find out details about him. And guess what? His signature is in cursive in his war record when he's signing, signing up. And... Uh, the way he did his J for his John Keane uh, was very kind of sloppy uh, and going straight down without a little curve at the bottom of his J, mm. which is just like how it is on the tie. 
Wow. So I'm thinking, I got this guy. This <laughs> <laughs> is the son. But then you got to figure out, well, how come Charles Webb's got his clothes and how come so many of these things are American? Mm. So I'm looking at this guy's war record. And so he was... This is John dog, Keane. John Keane. Yeah, okay. Well, this is the Summerton Man's nephew. So I'm looking at his war record. He dies in 1943 in the war. Oh. And all his clothes and possessions are sent back to his parents as you do uh -huh. uh, uh, for any parent whose son has died in the war you send everything back and in the war record there's a big long list uh, a checklist of items of stuff they sent back you know two pairs of underpants five socks <laughs> you know all that uh -huh. sort of thing you know going going through in laborious detail i'm going down the list and it's going, it says things like map of Chicago, American coins, da, da, da. So like, this guy's been to America. Interesting. <laughs> uh, so all this stuff's been sent back and um, to his parents. And, you know, as a parent, you know, what do you do with all this stuff? You might mourn for a month or two with the stuff and think, okay, well, let's give it away. Mm. And perhaps these... Charles Webb um, might have been close to his nephew or something and decided to take that stuff off their hands. And, um, and that's how I believe he ended up with this tie that <laughs> had a possibly JT or I Keen on it. And mm. we're now it's J Keen and how there's some American items in there. It kind of starting to all make sense. Wow. Wow. Isn't that weird? <laughs> it, well, and it's one of these things, it's like that that decision made in 45 or something for for him to take these items for whatever reason. And here we are now, 70 years later, still kind of piecing it all together. It was just such a, it was just a common thing that happened. Yeah. Probably very mundane, but... Uh, but it's but now it's like this big wow moment in a in a seventy year old mystery. It's just interesting. And uh, so the other thing we're able so just moving on now, uh, the other things we're able to find out about him is that his dad was a baker. Okay. He was a German immigrant who emigrated to Australia and went into the bakery business. He had several different bakeries, uh, moved around a bit, but settled down eventually. Um, in a place called Springvale in Victoria and open up a, a, a big bakery there with his wife. And um, we found out through records that basically Charles and his brother Roy, the one, um, this is a brother that also died in the war, um, basically worked at that bakery. Hmm. So they're working in that bakery and um, uh, you know, from being in their late teens to later. And um, seems that Roy was the one that did their bread deliveries and possibly Charles was doing, doing helping in the baking. But it seems also as simultaneously at the same time, uh, Charles went to uh, college. So 
It's a place now, still exists, it's called Swinburne University in Victoria, but in those days it was called Swinburne Technical College. Mm. And it seems he did electrical uh, engineering there. And he was doing this at the same time as being in the bakery. As far as we can tell, um, that was just his qualifications. He didn't seem to... Uh, maybe he was moonlighting and doing bakery and doing some electrical engineering at the same time. We don't we don't know for sure yet, but we do know for sure that the bakery was sold in 1939 because his dad died at that time, and um, that's when Charles decided to finally get married. Mm. So he got married quite late um, for a man in those days. About ten years later than most guys did. Be that uh, late twenties, early thirties. Uh, so let's see. Uh, he got married in forty-one, and he was born in nineteen oh five. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, late uh, late thirties. Yeah. Quite quite late in those days. Common now, but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I like all his siblings were married much much earlier than he was. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was like, uh, mummy, mummy and daddy's boy. <laughs> being the last to stay on at the bakery uh, do you know what i mean whereas yeah. all the others gone off and got married he he was um mummy and daddy's boy and uh yeah and so it's it's then when he got married he seemed you know, we, we can now trace that he actually worked for a place called the red point tool company and they made electric uh drills hand drills okay so he was maybe have been designing and fitting the electric parts of those drills, uh, one assumes. Uh, and then um, it appears that in 1947, he falls off the radar because that's when he separates with his wife. Mm-hmm. And that's the last uh, we have any record of him at all. Yeah. And then suddenly on, in 1948, he appears on the beach in Adelaide. So that's I... the story. I had read some stuff about, uh, I guess, what his wife had said about him in, in the divorce. And it sounds like he was a troubled guy. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you, you, can, you can kind of, you know, people go to war, they come back and have uh, PTSD and yeah. that sort of thing, post-traumatic stress disorder. And even though he didn't actually go to war, you can possibly see that he may have suffered that himself mm-hmm. because you know um his elder brother was not obviously not well because his elder brother actually he had another brother other than boy called um richard uh richard russell who um who actually died just the year after him mm-hmm. so he was already not well uh, in fact, all his siblings actually died quite young of uh, heart issues. Oh, blocked wow. Yeah. Because in those, those days, they're all smokers and stuff. True. Yeah. And they all died, you know, um, in their 50s. I think there was only one that lasted to their early 60s. They were all gone in, most of them gone in their 50s. Hmm. So yeah, his elder brother died just after him. Uh, so his elder brother was not well. Uh, his elder brother's wife had died uh, of a heart problem quite young. Um, you know, then his uh, father died in 39. 
You know, then his mum died in the early 40s. His nephew, John Keane, died at war. Mm -hmm. His own brother, Roy, died at war as a prisoner, a prisoner of war in a in a prison camp, was killed in the camp. Um, Then, you know, his marriage breaks down with his wife. You know, that's a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of stuff going on right there. That's uh, and if he was a bit of a sensitive guy, um, Mm -hmm. You know, if it was me, you know, I'm kind of like tough as nails and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, well, they react. probably didn't have access to mental health services back then the way we do today. Yeah. Yeah. But for some people, you know, that, um, that, that could be quite stressful. Yeah. That could be quite stressful. Well, and what, what you're just talking about with World War II, it's, you know, it's honestly, it's not something I've really even thought about till just now, but, you know, with, with this pandemic, that we're, you know, still kind of coming out of, we're, we're all kind of feeling the effects of that. And we kind of yeah. are, are recovering from that. And like, just imagine what yeah. World War II must've been like, you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because think about this COVID, right? Was not even a war. And yet there are so many me- mental health problems mm-hmm. because of, uh, you know, a whole lifestyles changing and, uh, you know, not getting out as much and working from home and yeah. when we're for when we didn't want to and things like that. There's a whole bunch of men- mental health problems that come out of that. So just imagine the stress of a World War II and knowing that your relatives are dying out there mm-hmm. um, and the whole world is a war. That that That's very stressful stuff going on there. Um, it kind of puts it all in perspective. Yeah. So, you know, uh, and in those days when you write divorce papers, you obviously... Uh, encouraged by the lawyers of the day to mm. be as mean as possible. <laughs> Probably especially uh, for, for the woman's side. Yeah, to, yeah. to, to pull, pull out everything you've got so that it gets approved. Yeah. And that's what basically happened in those days. But the, the funny thing is, is that his wife, Dorothy, then gets married again to another guy in uh, 1952, it's the same year that her decree Nisi from Charles Webb comes through and she marries this guy called uh, Jeff Lockyer. And then Jeff and her get divorced uh, in, in the mid-50s. And in their divorce papers, he's the one that files for divorce this time. And he cites her as being cruel. Interesting. So, hmm. you know, who's the cruel one in this relationship? Who knows? Who knows? Uh, <laughs> wow. So I don't think you can read too much in these old divorce mm. papers. Um, I think you can. Um, there's some things she says in those divorce papers that you can take on face value, like says that he was into writing poetry. You know, I believe that mm. she'd have no reason to make that up, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, little nuggets like that are quite interesting because, hey, this is a guy with, um, with a Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Right. So that makes sense. Yeah. Now, if you think of the average macho Aussie guy uh, in the 1940s, they ain't going to be walking around with a Rubaiyat. <laughs> I can tell you that. Yeah. So this kind of starts to all make sense now. Mm. This episode is also brought to you by Canker Boy. So this might be a little personal maybe a little uncomfortable to talk about, but some people, and you might be one of them, get canker sores. 
Not to be confused with cold sores or fever blisters that cluster around your lips and that kind of thing. That's something else. That's herpes simplex. Canker sores are on the inside of your mouth. They're round. They're red. And they make eating an orange feel like you got stabbed in the head with a lightsaber. They're super painful, and they can swell up to the point that you can barely even talk. Most of you probably don't get them regularly, which is good for you. But for those who do, you know what I'm talking about. So this is something that I've personally suffered with for my whole life. It's a family thing. Uh, but along the way, I did stumble across a solution that actually helps, and that's Canker Boy. It's a vitamin supplement that you take once a day, and it helps keep down your body's overproduction of inflammatory cytokines, which is the root cause of recurring canker sores. It's been on the market for about five years. There's a ton of positive testimonials on Amazon. Everybody's different, so of course your results may vary, but most people do experience a reduction in the number of severity of their ulcers within two to six weeks. So if you're one of the poor souls like me who deal with these recurring canker sores, can't hurt to give it a try. Just go to cankerboy.com. That's C-A-N-K-E-R-B-O-Y.com. There you'll find a link to buy it on Amazon if you want to do that, but we do offer it as a subscription. And if you sign up using the code CONVERSATIONS, you'll get 60% off your first two months supply. There's also plenty more information there if you still have questions. So once again, it's cankerboy.com. Go check it out and live life pain-free. Interesting. We're just kind of like putting together this guy's life from all those years past. Oh, and here's, here's an interesting thing. Uh, that might spark off some conspiracy theories. Oh, yay. <laughs> the Dorothy's divorce papers show that she's in this state. She had moved. To Adelaide? Yeah. Uh, so the filing was in 1951, showing that she was in a small town outside of Adelaide, uh -huh. but she may have been in Adelaide proper earlier. We don't know yet. Um, at the time of um, Charles Webb visiting. So oh, okay. if we can establish what year she actually arrived here, because it's likely she would be in the main part of Adelaide when first arriving. Uh -huh. You don't go off to some little town in the middle of nowhere <laughs> straight away, right? <laughs> you kind of come to the big city. Uh, you uh, m maybe meet some guy who then takes you out there. Mm -hmm. uh, who was Jeff. Um, so yeah, so if she was here, uh, and then now he's here and he visits and he's mm. died, um, you know, and she's down as working in a pharmacy. And there's all these conspiracy theories that he was poisoned or had an overdose oh. or something. Um, you know, but who knows? Uh, if we can ever join those threads together but that, that's an, that's that's the next conspiracy that right. uh, people, <laughs> people are looking at right now uh, there's all yeah you, you can't help but like try to build the case and, yeah. yeah yeah so you know whether something nefarious was going on with her and um, her assisting his death or not i don't know mm. um but it's something uh, i think people will play with that idea for some time to come. Well, I would love to jump back just real quick. And um, I'm, this is something you spent a lot of time on. You've definitely put a lot of work and, and uh, elbow grease into solving this and everything. Um, and it's, and I can see why it's fascinating. Obviously I've done a couple of videos on it for that reason, but um, I would just love to hear from you. Like, what was it about this when you first ran across this case that, 
that wound up like tying you to it for the next almost two decades. Well, because this is not your background at all. You're, you're, you teach electrical engineering, engineering. Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's a lot of connections. Um, you know, there's the, the coding and doing all the statistics and mm -hmm. uh, analysis of codes, um, you know, in, in electrical engineering and computer science and stuff like that, we have to know about computer security and codes and that sort of thing. Um, we teach that stuff. Um, so that, that ties in. Um, another, another thing that ties in is, um, you know, all the, uh, you know, information management and um, informatics. Um, and there's also bioinformatics of DNA. Um, these are all things engineers get involved with. Uh, just this year, I got my students to write some cute software. Uh, that can take all the names of this uh, family tree of 4,000 4, people and put them as little dots on Google Earth according to oh. where they were born. Uh -huh. So we can, we've now got sort software to automate that where we can suck all this information off a family tree and stick it on Google Earth and actually visualize where everybody on this tree is over time. And we've got a slider bar to change the year. And we can see how all the clusters of points move around. And so we, we want to use this software. We want to write this and more software that will assist investigators in the future that are trying okay. to work out trees like this. And finding geographical clustering like this is very helpful when you've got this daunting huge tree and you don't know where to start looking. Um, uh, so, you know, there's lots of skills that we use in uh, this. It, it, it all comes together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the same kind of mental tools that you use as an electrical engineer applied to the, the gathering of data on this, uh, yeah. on this mystery. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, electrical engineering comes up in all sorts of unexpected places. Like uh, if you walk into a hospital these days, you think it's all medical, but everything in there is electronic, you know. It's true. Yeah. And, and uh, who do you think made that stuff? Us electrical engineers, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have to learn about everything. You know, we have to learn about medicine and all kinds mm. of things to be able to apply apply our... our um, our equipment to different things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we have stu students that we graduate go go off and um, because they're so good at math, you know, they get uh, they get job offers in places that just work on the stock market and stuff, and they become financial traders because they've got all the maths and computational skills to do all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, it, it, it pops up all over the place. <laughs> It's, it's uh, one thing I say to my students, it's great being an electrical engineer because you'll never be without a job. And I'll tell you why, because every industry, no matter what the industry is, has got some electrical engineering or electronic engineering mm -hmm. in it somewhere. Um, That's true. So you, you can get a job in any industry. But for you personally, it wasn't it wasn't the story that pulled you in, I guess. It was just sort of like the, the connecting of the dots and the the minutia of the details and stuff like that. I'm just trying to get like why you became so 
I don't want to use the word obsessed, but you, you've dedicated a lot of time to this. Oh, yeah. I, you know, when it's reported in the media, they like to say I was obsessed. But, uh, I, you know, and you know how I was saying to you that just even in my normal everyday engineering work, say, uh, did I say this to you that, uh, that the, the toughest paper I've ever published, scientific paper, took me 15 years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it needs a certain level of obsession to kind of stick through with it and keep mm. going that long. Um, maybe I wouldn't say obsession. Uh, maybe I'd say persistence, I think, mm. <laughs> is the word. Um, Fixation? The, well, is even academic, that too strong? You know, in the academic world, uh, you know, in a university, we have very clever people, uh. right? And the way I look at it is, is I look at it like athletes, like sportsmen. You, you see guys with huge muscles like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh -huh. And then you see guys that are thin as a, thin as a beanpole, but is like the world's fastest marathon runner, right. right? And they're two different body types. You can't expect uh, each to do each other's mm -hmm. sport, right? And it's the same in a university with everybody's brains. They're all very clever, but clever in different ways. Some of them have got a Schwarzenegger brain, <laughs> very good at heavy lifting some difficult problems quickly, mm -hmm. but are terrible at sticking with a long problem for many years. And then That's some true. dumb guys like me who aren't that clever, but will just stick with it uh. to make it happen. Uh, so I see myself as the marathon running of okay. solving problems. Uh, I'm not, I, I don't have a big muscular brain. I uh, have the a lean, mean one. <laughs> you're the persistence hunter. <laughs> the one that will just go the distance. Yeah. Um, because I, I, I have to overcompensate for that. <laughs> oh, I doubt that's true. <laughs> um, I get where you're coming from, though. I actually yeah. read a book recently you might find interesting. It was called range. And it was, I think the subtitle was why generalists uh, succeed in a specialized world or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But it was, it was about like how, um, I don't know, like part of it was talking about kids who were brought up like Tiger Woods was, he was two years old and he was out on the green putting and stuff like that. And he just was like drilled, drilled, drilled into, into golf his whole life. But, uh, but there are other people like I think um, was Kobe Bryant one of them or was it Roger Federer? Definitely Roger Federer was like, he did all kinds of things when he was young and then he just eventually like found tennis and tennis became his thing. But anyway, uh, to you, to, to stick with your athletic metaphor there, but uh, uh, it was, it was basically making the point that like people who are generalists and kind of like dip their toes into everything can have an advantage in, in business and life and whatnot. So what you just yeah. said made me think about a little bit. Oh, uh, you said you, you don't mind a few rabbit holes. I've got a really good one for you here. Go for it, yeah. It's, it, it's the process we went through to actually get the DNA out of the hair is a very interesting story. Mm. I don't know if you know the full story of that. Probably not. But what happened was, <laughs> it was around 2012 that I noticed that the Summerton Man's death mask and for those of the listeners who don't know what a death mask is, it's a plaster bust of a person, but not any old plaster bust. It's one that's actually directly molded off the body, off the dead body. Yeah. So 
in the police museum here in Adelaide, they have his death mask that was made of the man six months after he died. And they did it because they were about to bury him and they wanted an effigy of him mm. so that they could show people uh, in case they found a long lost relative or something, yeah. something like that. Um, and, and of course, that around... mask, it's, it's, it was six months later, you can tell it's just so like stretched. Yeah. And, it's yeah. stretched. His face has flattened. Yeah. Because the poor guy's been in a fridge for six months. Yeah. Uh, so it is distorted. So I think that plaster bust was a waste of time uh, for what it was intended to do. Yeah. Uh, uh, it wasn't a very good image of him, but it was a gold mine for DNA because, <laughs> because, and of course they had no way of knowing that in the 1940s, right? Yeah, yeah. DNA was not a thing then, right? So anyway, um, mo uh, what I found around 2012, I was staring at this uh, plaster bust in the police museum and noticed there were tiny little hairs stuck in the plaster. And you can tell that they were really the guy's hairs because they're standing on end. There's no mm. way you can get accidental hairs standing on end. They're, mm. they're going to lie flat. These are actually stuck in the plaster on end. And so this has come straight out of, off the body. And so I was thinking way back in 2012, this could be a source of DNA. And uh, so I got permission uh, to extract hairs from the bust. And um, I took uh, a lady who was an expert in hairs from my university. Her name was Janet Edson. And uh, we went to the police museum together. This is now three years later in 2015. <laughs> and, um, and I'm glad I got her to take the hairs out and not me, because she thought of clever stuff that I would never have thought of. For example, like if you just pull the hair with tweezers, it just snaps. Sure. And the root is embedded in the plaster and the root gets left behind. Mm. And the conventional wisdom of the time, um, forensic wisdom, was you always need the root when you're doing DNA. Um, spoiler alert, this, this whole Summerton Man episode shows that that's actually not true now, but we'll get back to that. Okay. We'll get back to the point. But this was the wisdom of the time. You've got to have the roots. So we were obsessed with getting roots back in 2015 because yeah. this is what what everybody was saying we had to I do. I love how you're talking about 2015 like it was, you know, a really long yeah. time ago. <laughs> yeah, it was a long time ago in the DNA world. Right, exactly. It just speaks to that. And uh, as, our, as the story unfolds, you'll see how fast the technology is, 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 wow. is uh, traveling. It's absolutely mind-blowing. So 2015 was like prehistoric times for DNA. And so we were saying, oh, we must have the root. So uh, how do you get it out without snapping the hair? Um, seems impossible. And you can't damage the plaster to get it out because this is an object that's in a museum. Yeah. This is now a museum item. You can't damage it in any way. Yeah. Um, so she was very clever. She went around with a magnifying glass, looking at all the hairs carefully and found spots on the scalp where the hairs appeared in a cluster. Mm. And what she did is she slid out 
a hair in the middle of a cluster yeah. that wasn't natu- it wasn't actually touching the plaster directly, wow. but just touching neighboring hairs. And she was able to slide out a few hairs like this with roots on. So I thought, hey, that's brilliant. That's amazing. Mm. And so uh, in our DNA lab at the university in 2015, she uh, she did the work of uh, staining, uh, doing a stain test, and it stained positive for DNA. So that was great. That was t- that was check check one, because <laughs> um, because you know there were various uh, cynics and critics at the time saying, oh, you'll never get DNA out of the Summerton man anyway, because he was embalmed in formaldehyde. Mm. That's gonna kill all your DNA. <laughs> Is that but true? The- well. Another rabbit hole. We can... <laughs> that was the wisdom of the time. Okay. There are now techniques to get around uh, problems with DNA that have been corrupted with formaldehyde. It does make the problem a lot harder, though. Mm. Uh, so it's nice to not have any formaldehyde messing up the DNA if you can possibly avoid it. Okay. But this was formaldehyde-free. Yeah. We showed there was actually no problem with formaldehyde. It was fantastic. Um, so there were obviously parts of the scalp that uh, formaldehyde didn't get to. So that was great. And then, unfortunately, the concentration levels of DNA in the hair root were way too low. And uh, we got no DNA sequence out of it. But we did get one little bit of information. We got that the Summerton man's maternal haplogroup was H. So people's uh, come, people have different DNA groups that they belong to and the different letters assigned. Mm. And group H is very common throughout Europe. So it didn't give us any extra information. But I was excited uh, because it meant there was DNA there. There was some information that came out of it. Yeah. Some information. So get this. We go from almost nothing to <laughs> trying it again in three years. And the technology in the lab had just skyrocketed so fast that in 2018 we got the whole mitochondrial genome and these are guys in our university dna lab doing Mm -hmm. this not me personally because uh, i'm I'm just an engineer but they 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 were doing that so uh the whole mitochondrial genome Uh, and what that means is all the dna from the summit of man's mother's side yeah but Slight catch here. Unfortunately, sites like Ancestry.com, 23andMe, etc., mm. etc., they don't use the mitochondrial genome. They use what are called autosomes, which is uh, inherited parts of DNA inherited from mother and father. Mm. Um, so uh, it was the wrong part of the DNA. But I was excited because it's like we've gone from almost nothing to to this huge amount of DNA data. And the parts that are inherited um, from the mother and father, um, this is called the nuclear DNA, it's um, the concentration levels were too low for it still. But nevertheless, we got 16,000 markers, 16,000. Now, that might sound like a lot to you, but it's not enough because sites like Ancestry.com, 23andMe, etc., they can use 
by the way, it's not just those two companies. I'm just saying their names because they're mm. the big ones. There's actually, do you know, there's like 20 of them now. They're breeding like rabbits. I know about some some yeah. health monitoring uh, companies yeah, yeah. where you can get a DNA and they can tell you about your predilections yeah. for various There's basically things. 20 DNA companies out there now mm. you can go to. And they use anywhere between half a million to 2 million DNA mm. markers. And we only got 16,000. That's nothing. Mm. And it's like it's so low, the software won't even let you upload it. Oh. It's that bad. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so uh, we were stuck there. So, uh, But that was such a huge difference over three years. So then comes uh, 2022, which is this year, mm -hmm. and the beginning of this year, you know, Colleen said, you know, why don't we just send it to a lab in America called Estrella. So this is an American lab and they're really good at doing hair. And I'm glad we did this in the end because they have some technology that uh, we don't have in our own lab here at uh, in the, our university. Uh, and so probably if we waited an yet another year, we could have done it in our lab. But, uh, you know, name of the game is to get this out quickly. Mm -hmm. So, um, So I did that. And going by the wisdom of the day, I, I sent my best hair root that I had been saving up for 10 years in my, it was in my desk drawer. <laughs> <laughs> in a little Altoids but, can just, just hanging out. Yeah. There. Yeah. Just uh, really secure. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but because we had security because no one knew it was there. So no one knew where to look, sure, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it was in there. Um, and it was all, you know, sealed up in plastic bags, et cetera. So it was uncontaminated. Sure. Um, and um, so I sent this prized hair root that I'd been saving up for 10 years, thinking, okay, this is going to crack it now. And guess what? Australia had a crack at it, and it was a flop. Oh. Yeah, didn't work. Huh. So more out of desperation <laughs> than actual knowledge, <laughs> I sent some five centimeters of hair shaft with no root because it's like I'm desperate now. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and bang, they got two million DNA markers. Two million. Isn't that so, amazing? So in 2015, the whole I got to get the, the root thing. And you're saying that this year, it turns out that without the root, they were yeah. able to get like way more than they were able to get with the root three years before. Exactly. So let me explain the science behind what's going on, what I think is going on here. So what's going on is this wisdom that you had to get the hair root comes from the world of police forensics. And mm. in the world of police forensics, you're only dealing with around about 20 DNA markers, not 2 million. Oh, wow. Okay. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. You see, a cop DNA test where you're trying to see if a criminal, specific criminal matches to specific DNA in a, in a crime scene is a one-to-one -one match. So you can get away with just 20, 20 or so markers. I think in Australia we use 23. I'm not sure if you use 20 or 21 in America. It was somewhere around there, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, now if you do ancestry.com or something like that and you want to try and find all your nearest cousins 
that's not a one-to-one match anymore. This is a one-to-many match, mm. different ball game, different ball game. You can't do that with 20 markers. If you do that with 20 markers, you'll probably connect to millions of people <laughs> and you won't be any the wiser of how close they are to you yeah. or not, right? So that's why you need as many as 2 million. That's the science behind it. And the markers the cops use are called STRs, and they're quite long segments of DNA, whereas uh, Ancestry.com uses very short DNA segments called SNPs, SNPs, uh, single uh, nucleotide polymorphisms. You know, that's what it's short for. Okay. And, um, and, uh, and, and lots of them. And it turns out that the reason why cops said always go for the roots is because they're using these STRs, which are much longer and can be found in hair roots in high concentrations. And guess what? You don't get STRs in, in the hair shaft. In the hair shaft, you only get extremely small segments of DNA that uh, you can use as SNPs uh, that can go up on Ancestry.com and stuff like that. Okay. And so that's why the hair shaft actually was better in this case um, than hair root because the wisdom came from these long DNA segments, mm. whereas we're only with short ones and there's plenty of these short ones in the hair shaft hmm. and here's another here's another factor another factor is this hair was over 70 years old so what's happened is although you should have got lots of good snps in in this uh, hair root normally if it was a fresh one because it's 70 years old and it's a soft spongy porous root it hasn't protected that DNA very well over that period of time. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it's degraded. Whereas the hair shaft, uh, if you take one of your hair, pull, try and pull your hair, it's strong stuff, right? Sure. Hair is very strong. Uh-huh. And the re- reason for its strength is it's uh, got a pro- made of a protein called keratin. Mm-hmm. And that strong protein has left that DNA in much better preservation than the DNA that's in the soft, spongy hair root. Hmm. And this is, um, this is what I believe has happened and why we got such a good result from shaft and no good from a root. So, um, <clears throat> so, this, uh, so this really turns the old forensic wisdom on its head and yeah. is counterintuitive to people who aren't familiar with this new way of doing da- DNA. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it has consequences, uh, you know, for other cold cases in the future mm. to understand this difference and, uh, understand that you can get good DNA out of a hair shaft. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, very exciting stuff. Uh, I think a lot of things can be cracked now with this yeah. technique. I think, uh, a lot of these mysteries that I've been talking about are not going to be mysteries for too much longer. Um, well, actually, they, they yeah. solved that boy in a box thing too recently. Exactly. I had a lot of people point yeah. me toward that. Yeah. And that's, again, using uh, this kind of genetic gene- genealogy type approach. Man, that's just crazy how fast that stuff has uh, progressed, like you were just talking about. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, uh, I've kept you far longer than I meant to, but um, I, I wanted to. I always want to ask people who are experts in something that I've done a video on. Uh, I, you, you saw I've done two videos now. I guess you you've seen them. Um, yeah. Anything I get wrong? Any any assumptions I made that weren't right? <laughs> oh uh, yeah, when I when I um, watched your video, I, I was very uh, to be honest, I was very impressed with it because oh, it was it was so accurate. Um, like I've seen other podcasts and they get tons of details wrong. So well, I, I, I was, try not to I, I sensationalize quite, it too much if I can help it. But yeah, yeah. But even your details were mostly correct. Uh, there, there were like three or four minor details that were wrong and were so inconsequential that I don't even remember them now. <laughs> uh, so there were, there were, there were some things that were not quite right, but, but there were so minor, I wouldn't mm -hmm. worry about it. Yeah. No, nothing that just made you rage watching it. No, it's, that's all I'm it's, going for. I'm just trying to just keep people from uh, raging. No, it made me rage. It made me think. Yeah, I guess if I was a podcaster too, I would would have made the same mistake. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so uh, many people that have talked about it, um, and it's 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 a real like. I I don't have to have like a, a Google alert or something whenever there's any news on the Summerton man case, I get a thousand tweets and emails about it immediately. It's just, yeah, it's like yeah. an early warning system or something. Um, it's, it's a really popular subject and, um, and, and you worked if a you long really time. Want to watch it again and tell you what those things were, but I, I can't remember them right now. <laughs> well, probably a lot of the stuff from the first one was proven untrue by now anyway. So that's, that's why I'm, getting but getting it from you it's all a hypothesis <laughs> right it's a hypothesis not not a theory yeah. uh, i would love to talk for just a minute before we go about the the voynich manuscript thing though i mean i'm, oh, yeah. I'm fascinated yeah. by that before we do just one thing i'd like to say is talking about hypothesis things one thing i like to teach my students is a good scientist uh, people don't really understand what scientists and being a good scientist is I say a good scientist is somebody who actually doesn't believe in anything. Mm -hmm. And but let me unpack that a little. Let me explain. <laughs> what that uh, you know, as as a scientist, you're still a human, so mm -hmm. you can have your own personal uh, beliefs and preferences and all that sort of thing. And, and you and you do as any human needs a belief system to kind of make sense of the world around them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's okay. And, you know, plenty, you know, many, many scientists are religious um, and it's and it's um, over sensationalized that that they're all atheists or something like that. That's yeah. untrue. Yeah. That's untrue. They're not um, just a few hardcore ones aren't. But, <laughs> Very uh, hardcore ones. Yeah, yeah we, we have our private beliefs. But when it comes to science, the, the science itself, I'm saying, is you don't believe in anything. So you, what I mean by that is you don't believe in any scientific model. So mm. what we do in science is we make models of the world. We model how the world operates. And it's important not to actually believe in the model. Uh, we're not supposed to believe in the model. Mm. People forget that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just uh, you just say, okay, so this is a model. It works for the ranges of uh, parameters that we've tested it in in right. the lab. <laughs> to then expect this model to magically work outside of the parameter space that has ever been tested in. Uh -huh. 
that's numerology. That's not science anymore. <laughs> that's, that's why you should never believe in any model. Mm-hmm. You can't believe in it. Uh, um, so, yeah, uh, people, people uh, need to understand that about science. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and models do get overturned um, and new ones come along. And, um, uh, and so science is organic. It evolves. And, um, you know, the peer review process of scientific papers is imperfect because mm. uh, we're, we're just humans too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, scientists on a tight schedule trying to pre-review somebody's other paper. So, you know, the best peer review does is all it does is eliminate really obviously wrong papers. It doesn't ev- eliminate every bad thing. Mm. Uh, but the scientific process is organic and what will happen is is if there's a paper out there that's got something seriously wrong in there another paper will come along that will supersede it and turn it over Mm. Um, and so over a process of time we get better and better and that's how it evolves where the dilemma comes in with science is that if you have to use a science piece of work or reference or paper for some legal problem right now or some mm. medical problem where people's lives are at stake mm. and you're having to rely on this paper uh so that's where the dilemma comes in and 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 i would say that you know if the paper was published yesterday don't rely on it <laughs> you only rely on papers that have been around there for some period of time and have mm. stood, stood the test of time and other other scientists have built upon that work and actually found it useful and been able to do stuff with it. Uh, the the real peer review is is the time and standing the test of time as yeah. it as it goes along. And uh, you've got to ask the question: you know, has this paper withstood that? Had there ever been any replication studies? Has anyone actually ever reproduced this? Uh, sure, you know, sure. yeah, yeah. Uh, is this something that could be in danger of being turned over tomorrow? You know, there's lots of, there's lots of questions before uh, actually using science for some critical everyday thing right now. Yeah. And uh, so we have to be, one has to be a bit careful about that. And we're, I think we're all a bit slapdash with that. It needs to be tightened yeah. up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as, as, as someone who talks about science and, and reads all the comments that I get and stuff, it, it, it does feel a lot lately, uh, especially with the pandemic and everything like it, that the scientific process is a, not really fully understood by most people and yeah. be kind of under attack. It feels like a lot of times. And, yeah. and, um, I, the reason why I definitely want to give you kudos on, on this whole thing, like I was talking about earlier with, uh, uh, you know, kind of you following the evidence and stuff is, um, I, I talk about mystery content on the channel for two reasons. One, because people like it and, and I like it. I think, I think I'm a decent storyteller. I think that plays into my strengths and stuff, but, um, but ultimately you can learn about science in a lot of different ways. And I think that the way people are learning about science through this story is seeing how the sausage is made, you know, and, and like seeing people like you, like following a theory and a hypothesis and Nope, that's not right. I'm going to go this way now. And, and you follow where the, the evidence leads. And uh, I, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, but I think that you're doing a, a, a good service to the world by kind of showing how that, how that works and doing it so publicly. So Thank you. I appreciate that's, you. That's saying where that. I'm going with that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 
but uh and yeah voynich manuscript let's 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 get that out of the way because uh okay yeah so so you were saying earlier um that you're looking at whether or not it's an actual language and i some, sometimes i wonder was just somebody play, playing a prank or just messing around i mean yeah. people invent languages all the time conlang it, it might not even be a prank it might be a deliberate uh, thing because you know in those days to have a very nice looking manuscript on parch on parchment you could get a few gold coins for that mm. um so you could sell it to some unsuspecting high bidder mm -hmm. that doesn't know what it says and so you've got them <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah just think this is a, a cute manuscript um, the elfin and, people I found this in a cave you know yeah yeah so it could it could just be a scan uh, a medieval scan yeah you know <laughs> I always like I mean if, if I had if I was a billionaire I would I would just build a pyramid in the middle of Nebraska just so that people a thousand years from now would be like what is this what god were yeah. they worshiping or something you know yeah I can't imagine that that hasn't happened at some point in history you know yeah, I, I often like to just sit back and wonder, like in say two thousand or three years' time, when they dig up stuff from today, yeah. you know, and they find, you know, everyday objects like umbrella, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> iPhone, uh, you know, and they go, "What? What is this? What did they do with this stuff?" Uh, well, it, <laughs> you know, um, I love history stuff and it's always funny to me when, you know, they find some, some ancient site or something and everything they dig up has like religious significance. And it's like, you know, maybe it was just a thing they did. There's lots of things that we do. That's not necessarily, it's just, it's just a tool that we use to get through our day or whatever. I don't know. That's right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we're right on that one. <laughs> Most yeah, people aren't, have... you know, worshiping 24 hours a day. They're, you know, yeah <laughs> of course a lot of things that they find are also like burial sites and of course there are like religious significance around stuff like that but anyway yeah. Um, yeah so we can't really say anything definitive about the Voynich one way or another but you know uh I'm not ready to announce my results yet because I'm not totally sure but you know I, I'm I'm leaning towards it being a little bit made up really okay I'm, I'm leaning i'm leaning that way but you know i lent very various ways the <laughs> you don't trust your leans anymore do you i don't trust my leans anymore <laughs> I'm leaning right now you know that might change if some more evidence yeah. comes up. but um yeah and uh, that is not to get too detailed but is that just based on like kind of the same pattern recognition and looking for trying to read the code kind of thing that you were applying to yeah yeah the structure the structure of the way the letters are distributed and things like that are things that we look at computationally and um you know there's there's rather a lot of repetition in there um the way things are repeated and it it just doesn't feel right hmm. it just doesn't feel right so um yeah another thing we're doing which we're not ready to say yet have anything definitive but we're we're trying to use computational techniques to distinguish between numbers and letters um and you know we haven't got far enough to say anything mm. clear about that but if you can separate different categories of symbols in there 
to actually be able to say, hey, these symbols are actually just letters only, and these symbols are something else. Mm -hmm. They're little special characters or numbers or something. To be able to separate them out would be a big start. The problem is a lot of investigators have just assumed all these symbols, just all letters automatically, might not be. Mm -hmm. There might be other little signs in there. Yeah. Uh, um, so... Uh, yeah, it, it's a very hard problem. M maybe it'll never be solved. Who knows? <laughs> what what year do they think it was made? Um, well, it's been, it's been carbon dated to be sort of like 14th, 15th century, somewhere mm -hmm. around there. Uh, I don't think you can put an exact date on it. Sure, sure, yeah. But uh, that's what the carbon dating says. Okay. And I think, uh, yeah, when, when Mr. Voynich himself purchased it uh, it was in it italy that that happened mm -hmm. so it's uh obvious and even when you look at it you get the feeling this must be european it's not from some exotic uh, oriental <laughs> part of the world or anything like that um yeah so and they don't really know yeah. where what, what its provenance was or whatever before voynich found it he, he just kind of found it there um yeah and to be honest i haven't actually looked into the provenance thing uh, but i i, I it, it obviously must stop dead at some point because <laughs> we don't know who yeah. made it that's right there um, is but... a um a book called the codex seraphinius i think is what it's called um, and it was only done in the last 50 years or so, but it was, it, it, it kind of makes me think of the Voynich manuscript, it, but it, it's, it was literally just a guy doing like an art project. Yeah. It was, it yeah. was just for fun and it's in, in, it's in a made up language and it doesn't really mean anything. It's got kind of nonsense illustrations and stuff. Um, I've been wanting to get a, a copy of that book actually, cause it's just a neat yeah. little book, but, uh, I don't know. Like I see that and I'm like, well, people do that kind of thing, you know? <laughs> I've actually been to the Beinecke Library in, in at Yale, where it is. Oh yeah, and they let me, and they let me in. <laughs> um, so I, you got to I actually, had a, like, yeah, get all of it. Yeah, I, I was surprised they didn't make me wear cotton gloves or anything like that. I was allowed to touch it with my wow. with my bare skin. Uh, very very odd, but uh, yeah, I happened to know a professor there uh, at Yale, and he managed to get me in. So That's that cool. was lucky. <laughs> And it's surprising how small it is. Actually, it's oh. it's uh, it's uh, when you see it in the flesh, it's quite a small book made of vellum, but it's quite thick, uh, but, mm. but quite small. Um, yeah, very interesting to see it in the flesh. And um, uh, another little story, talking of getting into places that are hard to get into, uh, is I had a friend who was a professor at Michigan University. And he got me, uh, and he personally knew one of the chief librarians in there and let me into a part of their secret part of their library that no one ever gets to go into. Um, I don't think many people even know about this. They've got this big vault in Michigan University, uh, you know, and you open it up, and there's this big, huge door, and you go in, and there's it's, it's an ancient manuscript room. It's oh, incredible. Wow full of ancient manuscripts, you know, and there's, um, you know, stuff from like the first century and second century is, you know, Bible manuscripts sure. and 
things from everyday life, you know, like, uh, you know, school kids, you know, Roman school kids and uh, Roman accountants, uh, you know, doing, adding up numbers on bits of paper. And there's an amazing diversity of stuff there. And, And when I saw that for the first time, this something went through my mind that I'd never thought about, about manuscripts, is that when you say compare sort of special manuscripts like, say, the Bible uh, versus just this everyday stuff, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like from from the days of Roman commerce, mm-hmm. um, it's just some commercial, Roman commercial document, uh, there's a big difference between them. One of them is absolutely impeccably written, beautifully handwritten, and the other one is really... Uh, really sloppy it's a it's a real mess and so it's like you've got this bible manuscript written absolutely uh with perfection and everyday writing is just really bad um and i never knew there was such a huge gap between the two things Uh back in back in those days yeah so when so this is relevant to the voynich because now when you look at the voynich it is so beautifully done and so it's elevating it mm. to the level of a priceless manuscript. Because gotcha. people in their everyday lives didn't write like that. That, yeah. that, that kind of writing is reserved for very special <laughs> manuscripts that you want to, you know, to live on. Yeah, well, they didn't have printers back then, so they had to have people with practiced skill to, you know, yeah. to translate and dictate stuff. Um, when I was in Ireland this last year, they were talking about uh, there were various monasteries that we had run across, and and um, they were talking about how there was sort of a network of of monasteries where the the, the I mean that's basically what the monks were was they would just carry around all these documents and transcribe them from one onto the other and make copies of whatever was in this monastery and then like go on to the next one, and that was just kind of like how they distributed information back then. Um, human, human photocopiers. Exactly, that's exactly what they were. Um, it's like there used to be human computers. That was, that was, a, that was a job that people used to have. Um, what, what you were saying about like the handwriting versus the, the, the books, it, it also makes me think of like, I always wonder how people actually spoke versus how things were written back then. Cause, cause you know, we don't really write the way that we speak, not necessarily unless you're writing a screenplay or something, but, um, or, or a play where it's meant to be spoken. But, you know, the way we write is different from how we speak. And all we really have is how things were written back then. So were people really speaking like that? Or what did the people actually sound like? That's what that's what I always Because you can't really know that. We'll never really know that. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. interesting to me. Uh, maybe if we uh, personal letters that people wrote each other, you might maybe closer to closer, how they really yeah. yeah. Because when you're writing like a book, you tend to be more, yeah, more formal. That's right. But you know what's funny is I even remember my my grandmother used to write letters to me, and uh, there were just little flourishes that she would put in there that she would never say in real life. You know, she would she would say like I I miss you for I have not seen you in a while or something like that. And I was like, what's this for stuff? You don't you know? <laughs> you don't say the word for. <laughs> no, you don't say for. It's very yeah. yeah. Uh, that always cracked me up. Anyway. Yeah interesting well 
I've kept you for way longer than I expected for us to go on. We usually go for about an hour, and you've been so generous with your time, and I really want to thank you for that. Well, it's um, been a pleasure. Yeah. This is no, this is really great. Um, there was so much in here that I, I, I knew that you would come with the details, man. I was ready for it. I, I knew that that's what we were going to get into. Um, yeah. But uh, anything, anything else to point people toward or anything? I mean, you don't have any books coming out on this or anything, do you? uh no time for that stuff yeah <laughs> yeah i imagine uh, well that was another thing was like it, it, it it's everything i always hear people talking about how everything feels like a scam these days and i was kind of looking i saw that you had written a, a couple of uh you know textbooks on you know you probably use it in your class or something but uh you you're not oh, yeah, monetizing so this in any way this is just a thing that you're doing because you were interested in it and you Oh, even textbooks it. aren't very well monetized because <laughs> <laughs> textbooks don't really make that much. Well. You, you only do it for the love. Mm -hmm. Well, as, as a student, when you see that your professor wrote the book, you're like, oh, man, <laughs> I can't get around this guy. He wrote the book. <laughs> That's um, right. Well, anyway, I, I we're, we could keep talking about this forever, I'm sure. But uh, I, re I really wanted to thank you for, for doing this. This has been an absolute pleasure and uh, good luck with the, the Voynich manuscript stuff. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. Take care. Good Bye. talking to you. Okay. That was, that was amazing. Um, I can't believe we got to talk for that long and I'm super grateful to professor Abbott for his time. Uh, so much cool info that came out of that. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before you go, I am trying to get into the habit of pointing people toward my merch store because I actually do get asked a lot about it. Uh, but I don't talk about it very much on my channel, but yeah, you know, I always wear those fun little nerdy shirts on my, on my show. Well, you might know this or you might not know this, but, uh, all those shirts are available for sale at my store. It's called answerswithjoe.com slash store. There's branded shirts with my logo on them. Also posters, mugs, stickers, um, a lot of different fun and nerdy designs that have nothing to do with my logo, but they might get a compliment or two from people who get it. Who knows? You might make a friend out of it. Uh, so yeah, go check it out. And if there's something on there you like on there, just, uh, you know, throw some money down. It does really help support the channel and then you'll get something cool out of it as well. So anyway, once again, that's answerswithjoe.com slash store. Go have fun. This episode was produced by Kimmy Britt, edited by Bray Brown. I'm Joe Scott. You can find me at Answers with Joe pretty much everywhere on the socials. Of course, my YouTube channel is Answers with Joe. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. Please do share this if you thought this was interesting. Um, a nice uh, review on whatever podcast player you're using right now goes a really long way. But until next time, thanks. Have a good one. Now go out there and start some conversations of your own. Take care.